Welcome to Pot Bless Canada, the in-house podcast of the McDonald Laurier Institute. I am Dr. Balkan Devlin, senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, where I lead the transatlantic program. After months of military buildup and threats, Vladimir Putin launched a war of aggression against Ukraine. Today, I am joined by Dr. Hanna Shalest, editor-in-chief of Ukraine Analytica and the director of security program at Foreign Policy Council Ukrainian Prism, who is based in Odessa, to discuss the current situation on the ground, what we can expect in the coming days, and what Canada and our allies do to support Ukraine in its fight for survival. This interview was recorded on Wednesday, March 2nd. Hi, this is Dr. Balkan Devlin. I'm a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, where I lead the Transatlantic Program. Today, I am joined by Dr. Hanna Shalest, Uh, who is in Odessa and who is the security program director for Foreign Policy Council, Ukrainian Prism, and the editor of Ukraine Analytica. Thanks for joining us today in these trying and difficult times to explain Canadians the ongoing Russian war of aggression in Ukraine, uh, what's the situation and where we might be going from here. Thank you for the invitation. So let me just start by asking you, this is a very fluid situation. Things are moving quite fast. Give us a a sense of a CITREP, a situation report about what's going on right now, particularly maybe in and around Odessa, but more or more broadly in terms of the war, to have a sense of uh, where we are standing. The situation is changing each 30 minutes, so uh, uh, that's definitely the most unpredictable development of events. But the general situation is as following. The, uh, the heaviest fightings are happening on the north of the country. We are talking about Chernigiv, Kiev, Kharkiv, also on the border with a contact line uh, between controlled and uncontrolled territories on the east. Where you go to the south, the heavy fighting has been happening around Mariupol on the Sea of Azov and also near Kherson, because Kherson, that is the exit from Crimea to the mainland. When you speak about Odessa, comparing to what is happening there, the situation looks much, much safer. However, still, we experience daily attempts of the airstrikes. Today, it was an attempt to reach the airport. We also had several attempts of the landing operations nearby, several, let's say, the closest, something like 20, 30 kilometers from the city. We now have several navy ships on the anchorage near our show. Sure, we are speaking about 15 miles, probably, uh, distance. All of these demonstrate the seriousness and the attempt to circle Ukraine as much as possible and to diversify our efforts so the forces cannot concentrate on one direction. What is the significant development within the last two days that predominantly civilian objects have been targeted by the Russian missiles? We have not only governmental buildings all around the country, but also we have hospitals being targeted through schools and railways, so all the civilian infrastructure. Plus, what is definitely quite a dangerous, the nuclear plants are under the threat now because Chernobyl is occupied and two biggest nuclear energy plants near Zaporozhye and near Mykolaiv are currently expecting the fight because the fighting is happening just a few kilometers from them. The picture you actually you know, painted for us suggests, I think, two things. One, as you pointed out, the idea is to disperse Ukrainian forces so that you know, make it harder for them to fight back because of the superior numbers that the Russians could bring the force. But the second one, it also suggests a, a much bigger political aim, a maximalist, uh, in, a, in a way, political aim for uh, Vladimir Putin when he commences this, this war of aggression. Could you talk what seems to be Putin's political aims 
and what does he want to achieve for our listeners and viewers? If to simplify, I would say that there are two goals, humiliation of Ukraine and restoration of the empire. And this empire can be called Russian Empire or the Soviet Empire. In his eyes, that is the same. Uh, he created some years ago to himself, and it been even earlier than the attempted annexation of Crimea, uh, the idea that the Soviet Union collapse being the biggest tragedy of uh, the 20th century. He expected to restore the glory of the country as he imagined it to himself. And this glory for him would be impossible without the uh, great history of the past. So in this way, he started the appropriation of the Ukrainian history and trying to present even the Second World War as it was only Russia, but not Ukraine, Belarus and other Soviet republics fighting in it. But also he started to think that only by restoring his power at these territories, he will be able to uh, make his own page in the history. But that is definitely uh, the joke here that instead of joining the history, he become a history. That's the issue of what is happening now. That is where his rhetoric is. You can follow his speeches within the last few weeks, all of them been referring to history. There were plenty of uh, misinformation, disinformation, the open lies over there. But he's trying to base all his arguments on history. That's something that he became even obsessed. But also in all these speeches, what we noticed, even before he spoke about Ukrainians, usually in the very negative meaning as something like small brotherly and understandable, he didn't care that uh, historically it is Moscow who is the small brother of Kiev, not opposite. But still, it was something of this deminimizing, probably, uh, efforts. And as for now, it was really interesting for me. A few of my colleagues, Afro-American colleagues from the U.S., they started tweeting like, you know, we felt the huge racism in his statements. How he described Ukraine and Ukrainians, we felt the parallels with the racism against the African-American community. And they were shocked by themselves. We even didn't think it like this. But these people uh, care about this thing. They, they understand what they're talking about. And that was quite an interesting discovery for us that really, when you want brotherhood, you're not speaking in such denominations about uh, another nation. It's clear that his, his chauvinism, in that sense, increased and intensified over the years. It's something I think you highlighted and, and have been following quite closely, in the, particularly in the past few years. His obsession with his place in history, uh, that we know he has been asking around the historians how the history will write about me, and his increasingly erratic and you know, unhinged speeches. One of the surprising things for me is how his... Uh, statements became you know, almost unhinged across time. You know, Putin was famous for being completely con in control of his emotions, and his latest speeches as, as a ranting madman uh, almost is quite worrying, and of course also suggests a very distorted worldview. It looks like with the initial operation, the purpose was first that you know Putin was extremely optimistic about uh, the chances, and that he really misread Ukrainians. I think he, he actually seems like he really thought that the Russian invading forces will be greeted as, as liberators, and he will just march to Kiev, and people will just lay down their arms and, and Zelensky would flee. And, and just a note here, whatever you feel uh, and, and think about Zelensky before, I think it's very clear right now that he proved himself to be uh, someone of, of character and get into the war hero, at least in the Western perception, uh, that's for sure. So his perception of Ukraine and, and how the war could go was very, very distorted. But the realities on the ground and how fiercely uh, Ukraine is resisting did this alter his vision with Ukrainian resistance in Kiev, in Kharkiv, in, in other places, and his inability to push through in a blitzkrieg style to Kiev and sort of impose a regime change when that, that seems to be failing? Would that 
make him uh, stop and think, or would that make him double down? And as we see in the past couple of days, increasing the targeting civilian areas and basically sort of reverting to a playbook from uh, Chechnya, Grozny and, and Syria and increasing the shelling and basically doubling down uh, rather than stopping and, and looking for an exit. You know, that is absolutely true that Mr. Putin and his inner circle uh, underestimated Ukrainians. We expected it earlier from his statements. He said that Ukrainians will be happy to greet Russians and that the information he spread in Russian media and social networks that Ukrainians should greet Russians with flowers. That's why a lot of soldiers joined and then they realized and now they're calling to their families and saying, oh, Ukrainians were not waiting for us. We've been betrayed by our commanders. That's all recorded by our security services for videos for their testimonies. And this Ukrainian unity, that is probably what Ukrainians became surprised by themselves. We definitely had this feeling of unity after Yevromaidan and uh, all other um, events in the country, but probably not in the same scope as we have now. That is tremendous. But at the same time, what we hear after seven days of war, that they are still spreading the information that Ukrainians are going to surrender, that if the city is Russian speaking, so the city should be welcoming the uh, uh, Russian forces. And that's really funny because even the mayors that's uh, previously been seen as not pro-European, they are definitely seen now as very pro-Ukrainian. And uh, we know how they're building the defense of the towns and how they're trying to protect and all the jokes happening around the country. So people definitely became the biggest surprise of Mr. Putin. His reaction to this, it seems to me that he became furious. And in general, he's becoming furious when something is going not as he planned. But here, uh, the whole campaign being based on the idea that Ukrainians would surrender. And we even know the facts that they've expected 48 hours. Because at one of their biggest uh, media websites, the article being automatically published with the information that Ukraine surrendered. It looks like somebody pre-scheduled it. And it appears and nobody noticed it immediately. So we have this print screen with this information. And definitely two days or seven days, you already feel uh, um, how everything is going on. So now, uh, because of this, we have these crazy statements about nuclear weapons readiness. And you understand that that is the statements that we probably didn't heard at least from 1980s, from the latest uh, crisis, or maybe even from 1960s when the Cuban crisis happened. So that's demonstrated that he doesn't have limits that he became obsessed and because of this you definitely don't know how the events would continue one point that you have raised and i think it's increasingly becoming clear uh, despite all the censorship and despite the russian state's attempts to control all the information environment in Russia, it starts, I think, trickling down to the Russian public. Uh, we saw with the protests across Russian cities against the war, and we saw, you know, with the particularly the sort of the young soldiers and, and others not knowing that this was the mission and uh, not willing to fight, and you know, even sometimes engaging in self sabotage and stuff like that. Um, there seems to be, if if he he doubles down and, and continues to target uh, civilians, there might be an upswell of of opposition uh, from the Russian public as well. Would that have an impact on Putin's uh, calculus? as well as very tight targeting of oligarchs. Not all of them are targeted yet. And I think there's still people like Abrahamovich and others need to be uh, targeted in a much more serious ways. 
and aggressive ways. Do we see elite discontent around as well as increasing public discontent of this uh, war of aggression and how our Russian people are, are reacting to it? Would that force um, one way or another idea to put in stop or in a very Soviet way, he suddenly needs the surgery and never gets out of the surgery kind of structure? You know, uh, the elite behaves the same as the general population. So we cannot separate them from the general public. And the idea is that the Russian society currently is very divided. We have some group of those who started to speak against the war. What is interesting that just few of them are speaking that Russia is an aggressor and really what is happening. Many of those who are speaking against the war, they are just thinking that that is the US who initiated the war and Russians and Ukrainians don't want it. So let's make peace, no war, but without uh, those who are guilty. But at least they accept that war is unacceptable and that that is bad. People are afraid. There are quite a number of people, the big percentage, who are just afraid to go on the streets or protest because previously they've been, even for the single protest, people were beaten and arrested. And for like at uh, Facebook, you can be arrested. All these cases people remember. So it is the extreme fear of the state uh, law enforcement agencies. But unfortunately, we also should be clear that it is quite a number of population who support this war. And we see it from the social networks, we see it from the uh, statements of journalists. For example, yesterday we were really shocked when several hundreds of the writers and poets signed an open letter in support of the Russian aggression uh, against Ukraine. It was published in the uh, literature uh, newspaper. It's called Literaturna Gazeta. It's very, very famous from the Soviet Union. At that time, it was seen uh, the most liberal, probably the fresh air. And you need to understand that among those who signed were even members of the Pan Club. For those who don't know what that is, Pan Club, it is the world organization uniting poets, journalists, with the idea of freedom of the uh, words, with supporting oppression and everything. So they have a very strong human rights components there. It's not just the cultural institution. So members of this pan club signed this letter in support of the war. That demonstrates that, unfortunately, uh, we can't say that that is only one Mr. Putin who is crazy. And as soon as he is getting out, uh, the situation can improve. Unfortunately, there is a population that's supporting but deaths of the Russian soldiers, when they are becoming public, we hope that they can change the situation. As for now, Russia is hiding these numbers. They even don't want to take the corpse of the dead soldiers uh, back to the Russian Federation. They already organized the crematorium, suggested the Belarusian border, so not to return back these corpses. So Ukrainian government created a special group at Instagram calling, you're looking for yours, something like this. It is more than five hundred thousand subscribers already to this group. So you can imagine what is the interest and how many people are searching for their relatives. In one sense, it's depressing, but it's also in another sense that there it seems to be mechanisms in which eventually, with unfortunately, with a lot of human uh, loss of life, will put pressure. Um, you know, I immediately remember about Afghanistan and the mothers of soldiers uh, committees and protesting against that during the Soviet invasion uh, of Afghanistan and when when those soldiers are not coming back. That's a very long and bloody bloody road uh, to go. Unfortunately, let me just uh, you know pivot to a question, and I'm mindful of your time about the Western response and how do you see it and what more. Canada, particularly about the West, um, as well broadly, can do. One thing that really sort of surprised me, sort of dark, ironic way, Putin is not 
seem to be not only sort of the patron saint of Ukrainian national unity, as you pointed out, we're combining, you know, really uniting uh, Ukrainians against the invaders, but also the guy who initiated the, uh, you know, European sort of rearmament and German return to a proper defense uh, policy. In that sense, uh, although it's still not enough, it was, you know, surprising uh, to see relative unity after dithering a little bit. Uh, coming from particularly the Europeans. Give me a sense of what, what's your assessment of, of Western response so far, and what would you like to see more that the West, Europeans, Americans, and Canadians can do to support Ukraine in its fight uh, against the invaders? Some of the experts are saying that uh, what Ukraine is receiving, despite the huge numbers of support that we are receiving, but it is too late. Because if, to be honest, only United Kingdom, Lithuania, and the United States uh, send the um, necessary weapons in advance, that is like javelins or the Anlor, that, that anti-tanks, rifles that are very important for Ukraine. Turkish Bayraktars are really important now, and people are joking that we have sent javelin and life-giving Bayraktars, making these analogs to the sent persons, but with all these jokes that definitely demonstrate the power of these weapons and how they are important for defense of Ukraine now. Some of the other states starting sending, but that is quite a problem with delivery. You understand that when you were able to send their airplanes just to Kiev, that is one. Now what they can is sending something to the border between uh, Poland and Ukraine, and then it is 800 kilometers that we need to pass by uh, land, and passing by land meaning that you are under the threat. So that is the uh, very serious risk uh, with delivering. But a lot of countries are delivering humanitarian aid as well, uh, both in money and in uh, fuel and some other. What Ukraine needs now, we definitely need more weapons. We are talking about anti-aircraft, so air defense systems, and we need the uh, anti-tank systems because that is the primary weapons that Russians are using as for now. We need fuel because we have sufficient of the uh, tanks and uh, aircrafts maybe now, but uh, fuel is something what you need constantly. And most of the fuel that we've been receiving before we were exporting it, Ukraine is not producer of all this. Then uh, Ukraine definitely uh, would like to have more airplanes because our air defense forces were not the most uh, developed later. I mean, that, that's expensive and that's what we need. But here it is limited to some countries because you can't give immediately uh, all types. You need to know how to use them. That is not a rifle. That's why we're expecting those countries who still have MiG and Su, many of them are NATO member states, still have them from Soviet times to help us with them. Also, uh, we are speaking about political support. We need support within the international organizations. We need lawyers, by the way. Ukraine really need the support of the international lawyers because we are now documenting the war crimes, the crimes against humanity, or everything that is happening, and support later in the international courts. Uh, the International Court of Justice starts their case on the uh, 7th of March. That's important because that's, you understand, lawyers are expensive, good lawyers are even more expensive. That is a huge work that should be done, and Ukraine doesn't have sufficient number of these because it was not an issue for us. Then uh, we can speak about, in the future, monies for the reconstruction, because Russians destroyed a lot, and we would need huge money for, just for the reconstruction of roads, uh, bridges, uh, and all other things. So the international community already can start gathering the uh, rescue and restoration fund. Uh, and the last but not the least, what Ukraine is insisting, we need a no-fly zone. That's not something that Canada probably can provide, it's too far, but still, the problem is that no-fly zone is not just because we 
uh, dreamers, but think about the uh, collateral damage from the cruise missile uh, if this collateral damage is the nuclear uh, facility. So uh, that is in the interest not only of Ukraine, but definitely in the interest of all other countries, because you can remember Chernobyl and uh, their consequences. You're suggesting very concrete things, particularly just want to sort of reiterate the lawyer component. I think Canada is one of the ones who initiated the ICJ proceedings, I think, with regards to crimes against humanity and you know, war crimes being committed right now. That's clear in a very concrete sense, something Canada can do and Canadian lawyers can do. So for those who are watching and listening to us uh, who are in this particular field, I think that's that's something that can definitely be pushed forward. One component with regards to the no-fly zone, I mean, one of the pushbacks uh, is that this, this, of course, this needs to be done by the United States, to be frank, if it is done. Um, no other really you know, country will have the necessary capabilities, both uh, you know, uh, in terms of air defenses, as well as the, the ability to patrol uh, the skies. And the US is very clear that they will not be sort of engaged militarily in, in, in the region. And one of the pushbacks with, with regards to the no-fly zone has been that you know, this, this risk of escalation uh, of war between, uh, between Russia and NATO, because you would end up immediately shooting down those planes, as well as their defenses in Russia. And then you, know, you could go to a, a much wider war. I think there are some credible arguments there. What I'm trying to understand is what could be a mechanism in which that not necessarily lead to a potential escalation, but also provide a support or a safe haven in one sense for the civilians. Because I don't think there are necessarily those two stark choices with nothing uh, provided as well as a complete cover in which you are are going into war. What could that in-between thing that is carved out could look like? You know, that is impossible to imagine without Russian forces getting out. That's just technically uh, unacceptable and would not be uh, possible. Ukraine would definitely not surrender. That's already understandable from the moods. The situation as for now is that it looks like Ukraine would not agree to become neutral state. And it's not because we are very stubborn, but because we've been neutral in 2014 and Russia occupied Crimea, so it didn't prevent Russia from the actions. And now we understand that there will be just no no sense in doing it. It looks for me that the real in-between scenario can be only when the opposition would rise inside of Russia. When the oligarchs, when the people from the security service would understand what damage it is done for the Russian Federation. And here I uh, hope, for example, for the intelligence community, because we saw the reaction of Mr. Narishkin, the head of the foreign intelligence, that he was completely uncomfortable at that meeting of the National Security Council of the Russian Federation. So uh, it seems to me that the changes can happen only from inside of the Russian Federation. That is the most difficult, that is the most problematic, but still, even with all the sanctions, Mr. Putin has nothing to lose because it is not his personal money he is losing or he doesn't care about this money that much. Uh, he hidden them in different offshores and that's quite a well known and it's more difficult to go for this personal money. Uh, he wants history, he doesn't want money. Uh, that's why uh, without the strong opposition inside of the country, I don't see any type of the uh, middle way. I completely agree there. You know, uh, there's one way out of this and that's without contemplating the end of Putin, I don't really see how uh, we could actually bring this to an end and what and we should really be not really shy about thinking about a post in uh, Russia and how we could help to bring that about and what will be the mechanisms to do that. I, I totally agree. With Putin in, in power, this, this war of progression uh, will continue. My question was about the no-fly zone um, in between this. So basically, is there a thing that could be you know, uh, carved out without you know, somewhere between 
nothing being provided on the one hand and a complete no-fly zone over all of Ukraine on the other hand. Is there a sort of a something in between that can be done that protects the civilians, but not, you know, not necessarily uh, increase the risk of escalation between a war between you know, Russia and NATO significantly. There will be some escalation. Is there, is, there, is there a formula? I'm not a military expert. I don't know whether that would be uh, you know, feasible. You know, one of the pushbacks, like I said, is that you know, if we do this, we are at war with, with, with Russia for, uh, for the United States. There has to be one way to carve this out in, in such that we are providing some protection to the civilians, uh, while not necessarily risking a broader war with Russia. As for now, we are definitely speaking about the no-fly zone, at, at least under the nuclear uh, facilities, because we are talking about the nuclear plants so that Ukraine uh, has at our territory, and now fighting are happening near two of them uh, in Mykolaiv and Zaporizhia. So that's something limited, but that is really important. The second is uh, it can be the ships, the navy ships in the Black Sea region that would patrol and would not allow the landing operations because you can do it in the neutral waters uh, or in Ukrainian territorial waters, but not coming to the ground, but preventing the Russians from crossing the line. That may help because in this way you will secure the south. You'll secure the regions on the south that are very important, uh, but not making any provocations that uh, for sure, uh, as additional support to Ukraine, because you understand that you can give what Ukraine uh, need and Ukrainian soldiers will do it by themselves. So in this way, all this equipment and ammunition that Ukraine is asking, that's definitely important. And first of all, it is protecting people because each missile that is counter-targeted with the uh, proper air defense ammunition, that is saved lives. That is the saved lives of people on the ground. No, I mean, I think these are, like I said, great, very concrete um, suggestions, particularly with regards to the arguments about over nuclear uh, nuclear power plants, uh, which has, like we pointed out, has a much broader ability to, for everyone in, in, involved. This is not really limited to Ukraine. So there's the real case uh, over there, as well as the blockading uh, of, of, of ships. I think that you know, we do have examples of that done before that could uh, significantly limit and complicate Russians' invasion plans. And the third one, of course, is that in a similar way that it has been done in the Second World War. We could have volunteer pilots coming uh, from other countries, planes like you pointed out, probably you know, Russian-made planes because the other ones will be too complicated with technically and trainings and stuff. But donating those planes, giving those planes, and having the Czech and Polish uh, fighter pilots that fought for the Battle of Britain, I think there is a group of who will be willing uh, to go to Ukraine and uh, volunteers to man those planes. And I think there is one way to provide, you know, at least try to level the field when it comes to air superiority with Ukraine without necessarily uh, officially involving or legally involving, involving NATO. And so I think we need to really think creatively and we need to be aware that I think the the, the fear-mongering that Vladimir Putin tries to engage in by scaring us with the nuclear threats is also a psychological tactic. As much as the West doesn't want a, a nuclear escalation, so uh, does the, the Russians. Just because he's making a lot of noise doesn't mean that he is going to you know, go up to that level uh, very quickly. So we need to, in that sense, not to be scared off from providing more support and standing up firmer. Yes, there is a risk of escalation, but that, that risk can be managed and there are multiple ways in which uh, that can be done. So we need to really be more, more creative in how we can provide that support and, and push back without uh, increasing the risk of a nuclear escalation um, significantly. And I'm, I'm fortunately, we're not seeing 
that kind of creative thinking in the West yet. And hopefully, um, hopefully that will get there. Anna, is there any any last points that you would like to make before I let you go? No, because the situation is definitely changing so quickly. So I just hope that over this summer, many of you will be able to travel to uh, Ukraine and to see the beauty of this country and to see much better news about it, about development, about investments, about the free trade or visa-free agreements between Ukraine and Canada. And we will be able to speak about the positive developments and the foreign policy and international relations rather than uh, the war that nobody could expect just in the mid of Europe. Exactly. And we all wish you the success uh, and, and the victory in this war of aggression. Please do stay safe. And thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for the invitation.